0: Hello and welcome to Super Excited with Stefan Roost. I'm Mike, the facilitator of this podcast. In this episode, Stefan talks to Alex McDougall. Prior to joining Stable Corp. as its CEO, Alex McDougall was managing director at 3IQ, responsible for the venture and digital asset yield initiatives. He co-founded Bicameral Ventures, a venture platform focused on interconnected investing, blockchain, interoperability. Data and identity self sovereignty, personalized AI, and Web3. In this episode, Stefan and Alex discuss the many opportunities in crypto, transparency versus legalese, and smaller banks in tune with communities. Enjoy this episode. Hey,
1: everybody. Super excited to be here with Alex, a long time, yeah, nearly crypto OG, right? I mean, we go back uh, quite a while. You got in really early on, I think, well, 2015, 2016, around that time. Right. Yep. Um, yeah. And, and you came sort of more from a, a corporate background. But I think rather than me telling about how you got into crypto, maybe you share a bit of background and super excited to have you long time builder, creator and, and thinker in the crypto space.
2: Amazing. What an excellent mini-intro, Stefan. And uh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful to be talking with you again, my friend. Yeah, Um, yeah, it's been been a while. I feel like I kind of got into crypto from, it's not really the academic space, but I've always thought like, okay, finance, like there's people with money and there's people who need money and finance is basically supposed to be the bare minimum to connect those two in the most efficient way possible. Um, and so I, you know, I got out of uh, my doing an MBA in, in 2015, and you're all filled with these big frameworks and models, and then you get into the real industry, and it's like, oh, this is chaos. <laughs> this is just monkeys on typewriters. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's tons of smart people and, and wonderful institutions in the traditional finance world, but it's grown into this, you know, colossus. and. And a lot of it is just we don't have great technology that underlies it. So it just sort of layered on all of these you know, obfuscation mechanisms up and up and up. I'm sure we'll talk about a bunch of the stuff today, but crypto to me always was was a, you know, a way to sort of wipe the slate clean and start fresh from kind of a new uh, a new methodology where we codify incentives and really kind of start at the ground floor again. Um, so, I mean, well, yeah, we've known each other for four or five years now. I think uh, you were a, an advisor to our fund when we first left banking. Um, oh. And uh, it's awesome, awesome to, uh, to be back on with you. Um, so, I mean, just just to finish kind of my, my story into the industry a little bit. Uh, so, graduated, did, did an MBA, did investment banking for a while, did mergers and acquisitions, uh, financial institutions group, fintech. Uh, and then actually started a crypto group within uh, a, a bank, um, which in, in 2017, just when things were starting to kind of go up and up and up, um, and actually got a really interesting sense of, uh, and then um, a really interesting sense of of kind of how big banks look at the digital asset space, and and you know there's. There's a lot of talent and a lot of intelligence and a lot of smart people that are, that are trying to figure this out and trying to get it right, but it's so anathema to how a lot of traditional finance works that um, really hard, especially in the early days when a lot of the institutionalization and a lot of the infrastructure and a lot of kind of the, the realness that um, we, we had developed and a lot has gone up in smoke, but that, that existed even less back in 2017, 2018, right? Uh, so, left in 2018 and got full time into the industry. Uh, did a venture fund, which is where we first met. Um, and then we've done all sorts of interesting things since then yield, stable coins, uh, some augmented reality, some golf technology stuff. Golf so, technology, it's, been, uh, yeah. it's been a ride for the last uh, three, four years.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the interesting part about crypto in a way, right? There are just so many opportunities and possibilities that allow you to sort of create and build and see what flies what takes off what doesn't work how to rectify it how to curve it right and how to um, continue to find a model engage the right kind of people to support that to move forward right endorse the, the teams building on that i mean that's the beauty of it right
2: well, and that's what I've always been impressed with your journey through the crypto ecosystem as well Stefan is you know you, you come from more of a, a uh, you know a, a I don't know if traditional tech is the, is the right uh, yeah, word yeah. for the background, but you've know, you you've started multiple things. You've kind of explored some fun constructs. You've really sort of hit the nail on the head a few times, gone through some c players, built some DeFi stuff, and yeah. and you're sort of always kind of building and experimenting. And that's why it's always so fun to kind of keep up with, with where you're at and what you're doing that latest. And, and I think you, you hit the nail on the head with one super interesting thing there, and it's you know, crypto in so many ways bucks – tradition right and there's yeah there's there's sort of two schools of thought on this i think we've we've seen over and over again where when crypto bucks tradition too much we lose sight of risk fundamentals and we make all the same mistakes as uh as there um but there's certain things like you know, people running multiple projects and being a, a lawyer and an investor and a builder and all of those things, kind of traditional mindsets, are like, no, you need to do one thing, and you maximize shareholder value in one way, and this is what you need to do all the time. But it's almost like this, you know, this concept of modern composable entrepreneurship, right? And yep. you can do a hundred things in crypto. And yeah. Yeah, I still think we we don't want to go too far in one direction. And and particularly myself, you know, I'm constantly learning what's the best way to take these hundred things that we're working on and sort of you know build it down into the one thing that makes the most sense right now. Uh, but it just it's such an open world uh, possibility of an industry, even in such a you know, chaotic time like this.
1: Yeah, but what I liked, I mean really about our journeys or or that in a way, whilst we've always been on other sides of the planet, right? I've been in Hong Kong and Japan and and you've been in Toronto and and we meet up in New York. but somehow or rather, we've always sort of found similar opportunities, right? In terms of seeing where the sort of next movements are in terms of yield opportunity, right? In terms of um, uh, what was it? stable coins, right? In terms of new areas that, that are emerging and that represent a great opportunity for, you know the blockchain represents a great platform for those specific biz- businesses or business models um and and i i always found that interesting and in a way weird <laughs> uh, yeah and then we even well, came into you know regenerate regen finance right remember regenerative finance we got into that at the, around the same time right so it's
2: like yeah interesting well and and i think these all kind of build on some core fundamentals of of the space of hey there's there's a bunch of ways that the existing world and industry has done things, and and a lot of the time it's not the the best way to do it. But we're always anchored by this legacy technology, and yeah. so when you kind of take the shackles off of that, and and for better or for worse, create this kind of limitless potential, um, then you know there's there's always these sort of flows and waves through the industry that. Uh, capture and, and inspire people and, and inspire people in sort of similar timeframes as well. So you know I think we, we were both sort of very much in the infrastructure space in 2017 when it was like, build, 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 yep. build, 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 build this foundation because you know, I think we, we saw a ton of, of ICOs come out with like, I'm going to revolutionize the mobility space and the healthcare space. Yep. Like, wait a minute, I don't need to start building tooling at the ground floor. I need to start building tooling in, like, the center of the earth to build yeah. anything functional in those early days. And so it was kind of all infrastructure for a little while. And it still is, you know, to, to a certain extent. But when you were getting into sort of the, the regen uh, finance side and, and the Burning Man stuff that's, uh, that we did at the time, um, there was a lot of these um, – there was a lot of these uh, – you know, um data self sovereignty ideas and, and the idea of sort of being you know, creating a supply chain of data that was all on chain and creating these, you know, barter or um, more more defined economies of how we um, you know, how we trade data, how we unitize, how we monetize data. And I feel like, you know, that that's kind of gone away a little bit, or at least it's sort of moved underground or potentially to be come back on later. And same with carbon finance, like what um, what, what you guys were looking on with, with Sonic. It's, it's yep. a, a no brainer of a technology for blockchain. I mean, you're taking something that is almost uh, it, very challenging to unitize and, and kind of uh, create a digital version of using traditional technology. And, you know, it's, it's almost a ready made asset for the blockchain space. But you know there's still a lot of infrastructure and there's a lot of legal infrastructure that needs to be in place for uh, for a lot of that stuff to come online. And then now you know we're both sort of in the in the stablecoin space. I think it's it really is sort of a hallmark of, OK, we've created all of these crazy things realize that hey maybe they're a little bit you know far out there still okay so let's go all the way back to the start and it's like what's the first thing we need to build it's like okay just a digital representation of a dollar all right you know an inflation adjusted one
1: yeah it's like really it's been you know and if you look at all of that building right I mean the the, the complexity has been building in a decentralized world right and so we've all sort of And throughout time, and and we've seen this now, right, where people are starting to build sort of hybrid solutions, where I sort of have some centralized capability. And then on the flip side, I have to build out in in, in certain elements around decentralization. And more and more, we've shifted to full-on decentralization as these services, the blockchains, the tools, and the SDKs, the IDEs have all become a lot more friendly. Um, and, and the skill sets amongst the developer has scaled up with those emerging tool sets. And so it still amazes me that we, you know, we still, each of the crashes that we go back, I mean, other than maybe 2017, 2018, you can't argue, but Mt. Gox, the original crash was a centralized solution. And then the FTX blunder was another sort of, you know, centralized solution. Why do we let ourselves always encounter such drawbacks and 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 is it just the individuals that have come in new and 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 just grow so quickly and 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 become greedy is it because there's so much money to be made in such new wild west territories
2: yeah and i think it's i mean it's a it's a fascinating study in in human nature i think to a certain extent and and you know you you have seen it a few times where we've we've tried to draw parallels between crypto stuff and, and you know, traditional finance um crashes and we've seen it through you know like the, the um you know, the, the 2008 crisis where it, we basically ran out of good leverage opportunities, but wanted to keep the good times going. So everybody just levered up higher and higher and higher down and higher, the yeah. risk uh, with, without sort of it basically taking the punch bowl away and saying, okay, you know, this, this is a, a normal market cycle. And that's really very similar to what happened uh, throughout kind of 2020, 2021. Like there was a very healthy arbitrage driven uh, yield trade in, in digital asset land. I mean, you could, easily clip double digits in the basis trade and the grayscale arbitrage trade um, and, and it, it made sense for for hedge funds to lever up borrow with BTC um, you know, pay double digits and, and earn higher double digits and then it made sense for you know, people to deploy into that space and earn high single digits or low double digits on their on collateralized stable coins being deployed into it there was like natural economics that flowed through it. And then you know, the Canadian spot ETFs came out and, and the grayscale ETF yep. trade, the grayscale trade blew up, the basis trade kind of closed up, but nobody wanted to stop paying those d- single digit yields out to, uh, to retail or to institutional deployers. And so you started going into Terra, you started going into you know the, yeah. the messing with asset liability matching. And ultimately, you, know, you, you, you try and keep that vibe going long enough and you end up in, in fraud territory. Like so, you can only sort of fake the uh, the. You, know, you can only sort of fake those those yields for so long. For so and I think long, right? The, one of the really cool parts about DeFi, right, is you know you watch DeFi yields go. You know they they plummeted back at the kind of the start of 2022 because you can't really fake it. Like it's it is supply and demand, all algorithmically written out. There's no way to sort of artificially juice those. I mean, you can. You can argue that yield farming is artificially juicing them but at least it's it's artificially doing it with sort of a transparent market mechanism um and so i think you know we we, you you asked or you mentioned about kind of what have we learned in this whole thing that we're that we're doing here and, and kind of what are the the lessons around um why does this keep happening um, and I think there there are there are a lot of similarities between you know digital asset world and, and traditional finance, and we learn a lot of the same mechanisms. I think it just happens on steroids, and it's so much faster and it, yeah. because a lot of machine speed as well. Um, and I think kind of the the biggest mismatch, and I think this is what we really need to sort of cling on to when we're trying to rebuild after all of this wreckage, is if we 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 made the point that, hey, you don't need to regulate this as hard because it's all transparent. It's all yeah, on-chain. Exactly. It's all working yeah. out in zeros and ones. Yeah. And yeah. then we built like hedge funds and securities lending desk and all of these centralized structures um, mm-hmm. that, that kind of you know, didn't, didn't have it all be transparent. Sure, we could see some of the on-chain stuff, but we don't know, you know what what is a balance sheet transaction. We don't know what's customer funds transaction, all of that stuff. Um, and so you almost have the worst of both worlds where you have these these um, centralized players that are kind of skirting regulation and, and holding and waving around the ethos of blockchain while not living up to it at all. Um, and, and so you really need to create structures whereby if you're going to have that centralization, and you're going to have people who are shareholder value at maximizing machines um, running these things, then you, know, you need to regulate them like centralized things. If you're going to truly create a DeFi pool that, hey, you know, the juice isn't there, therefore algorithm says drop yields, therefore TVL drops and you have this sort of sustainable dynamic size pool, then cool, maybe you can outsource some regulation into the code. But and you know, those, those two things don't work together until we kind of really mesh those two, then you know, we need to almost have two separate ways of managing these types of platforms.
1: Yeah, so we need, so there, there were two things there, right? I mean, one is the decentralized worlds that are actually very transparent. They're on-chain. They're governed largely by smart contracts. Those codes can be audited. Those codes can be compiled, verified. The community largely over time qualifies the various protocols out there that are um, uh, providing the service as they should be doing. Um, and if the teams are good teams, then they, um, you know, fix issues that the community would like to have fixed or change models the way the community wants to have them changed. And then, secondary, there are these, you know, centralized entities that are offering, that are straddling the traditional finance and the decentralized finance, right? With the lending protocols. And there it's largely, um, a trust element or a legal element, right? What are the documents that you're signing? How are they clarified? Um, are you actually operating according to those contracts? And if not, then you're in breach of and, and, and doing illegal things like you would anywhere else. Um, yeah,
2: and I think it's always it always comes down to like crime is crime and fraud is fraud, yeah. and there's and there's exactly. very limited ways to to um, to um, defend against that. But like, there's a lot of leeway in between there. And, and I think you know, this is something that you saw with a lot of the, the retail lending platforms is you, know, you read their terms of service, which not a lot of people did. And yeah. it's not like, hey, I'm loaning my assets to you or I'm depositing them in an account. It's like, here's a present. If you would deign to return it to me with gifts and rewards, that would be much appreciated. But I mean, there was, there was really like, you, know, you have no rights. We have entire legal title of your assets. Yeah. Um, and, and it just, you know, it, there's a certain amount, and, and I think this is, you know, we can learn good lessons out of some of this stuff as well of, in my bank account, I get 0%. In my you know, blank uh, lending account, I get 12%. Yeah, exactly. Brain off, go over there, click button, let's do it. Yeah. And, and I think that's you know, the lesson that we need to learn from that is, it's those types of obvious giant value propositions that are going to drive adoption. Now we just need to do it so that it's like an actual value proposition, not you know, it's sort of a, a, a quickly done um, thing that doesn't necessarily hold up over time. But you saw you know, hundreds of billions of dollars flow in uh, through that, that value gap. And it's those huge types of things that are really going to drive people. And I think we can start getting into that now with some of the stuff you're working on with uh, inflation-adjusted stablecoins, some of the cross-border payment stuff that we're working on, like 90, 95% cost savings. Like, Why wouldn't you do that? It's so obvious to do it.
1: But I think one of the things that you mentioned is, is really interesting, right? So on the one hand, I have a terms and service. And that terms and service, actually, from a legal standpoint clean keeps me clear right i i i'm giving you it's a it's a donation and if you likely by any chance you know give me something back i'm going to be happy and i'll receive something back right um and so we enter into a sort of new world where how much is legal versus ethical right i mean is today, you know, the ethics more important than the legal framework, right? Because you can lawyer up and you can, it's who can afford better lawyers, how long can you hold out? How long can you fight the, the campaigns um, that go through that then give you a strong, stable, you know, environment, whereas today, and, and particularly in crypto, it's really the community and the community is really driven largely by ethics or Uh, values maybe as another way, right? Not just ethics and values. How do we change that? And how do we govern that? And how do we operate in an environment like that, right? You need to be a lot more, much more attuned. It's not shareholder value anymore, like you said, right at the beginning, right? It's now community value, or that's your moat. Your moat is your community
2: yeah and and you said a couple of really interesting things there as well and and i i love i love the idea and i've thought this a few times of um you know we we've we've kind of changed some of the terms in crypto to reflect new things or or pretend like they're reflecting new things but are actually reflecting you know very old things And, and i think just back to this terms and conditions thing for a little while like how much are we trained to not ever read yeah. terms and conditions on anything? It's like, yup, yup, let me play house party now, please. No further questions. Um, and, and so when you create these technological experiences and you sort of simulate that, that oh, this is a game or this is fun or like over gamification, you get that same type of consumer behavior. Yeah. And, and you're exactly right. Like you are, you are protected. You can, you can put anything up. But it's sort of like you know, cookies and, and, um, and those types of policies of like, okay, how do we force sort of true comprehension? How do we you know, opt in versus not just opt out of things like that? Um, yeah. and, and there's some, you know, there's some level of, um, of inspiration we can draw from a couple of initiatives. So the accredited investor rule has always been a, an interesting um, um, piece that's driven a lot of people crazy. And we, we have, back in the venture fund days, we actually almost uh, <laughs> almost started some legal action just to, to prove a point around how ridiculous the, uh, the accredited investor rules are. Like one of my analysts is probably one of the you know, top 15 blockchain mines in the country and couldn't invest in his own fund because you know, he doesn't meet the accredited investor rules. Right. Um, and so it, it's. What has happened recently, though, is uh, the the Ontario Securities Commission, there's been some similar things in the SEC, they've started to have more um, exemptions for demonstrated levels of education. So if you have a certain uh, professional designation, then you're automatically accredited regardless of income standards. Um, And stuff like that, that just sort of grows the moat, but it's still not perfect but this idea of sort of demonstrating comprehension and demonstrating that you understand and demonstrating that you're you're, you're paying attention, I think that's that's one way to sort of start to, um, you know, start to tackle some of this click 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 never never really pay attention, and on the flip side of it, this idea of what you mentioned of kind of a self-regulating organization or a you know a a set of crypto standards that we need to hold ourselves to. And what's what's great about our industry is that when we decide standards, we can actually codify them into code law, right? I mean, yeah, it, yeah, it, getting yeah. people to agree on what those standards are is is you know, potentially um, a, a excellent way to uh, further challenge uh, decentralized governance mechanisms. Um, but but I think there's this this sort of dual standard of putting some threshold in place before playing in, in whatever types of, uh, of um, solutions these are. And, and whether that standard comes from you know, a regulatory body and is more traditional and you know, there's, there's pros and cons to that, or, you know, it comes from a, an industry type where, Hey, and you know, we, we need to hold ourselves to these certain levels of disclosures, these certain types of tests, um, you know, these the certain types of, of um, gating items before people can kind of have access to the entire world. And I think it, stuff like that is important even to, you know, to get, um, well, A, to allow us all to sleep at night, but B, to, to getting that sort of real sense of, of legitimacy and value in the industry. Um, and I do have a, a data point to make in a sec, but I want to uh, yeah. see how, where you go on those two. I, I, I,
1: I, I I mean, I, I wish we would keep T's and C's to one page, all contracts, how can we get everything to one page, simplify it, and if that means you need to edit the words down, um, get rid of fluffy words, just bring it to one page, one A4, one letter page, you know, whatever the format is, but just get it to one page. And if you need to visualize it even better, uh, you know, sort of just work that flow through, have descriptions there. To me, that would be just, then people would read it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. because then then I could sort of oh okay I can digest it right. Of course, then people will start cheating because then they'll write it in six font, <laughs> you know, something. <laughs> so that
2: yeah. I've got a very uh, a very tangible example of that. So um, Defi insurance, right? So it's yes. a really really yeah. cool construct. We saw a ton of it. Um, uh, Payoff and you know all sorts of challenges and good case studies and bad case studies, particularly in the aftermath of, uh, of UST. Terra. and yep. and luckily, well, luckily for some and luckily for others, there's not a ton of uh, decentralized insurance on, on exchanges, although there are, there is some. Um, but it, it's you know the the policies for that are three pages long, written in very plain language, and and nice. you know, they are. They are easily understood. Now there are, and, and this is exactly why we ended up with 500-page contracts in the first place. You know, there's there are gray areas in those types of contracts, right? There, if you what, one of the one of the examples in in uh, DeFi insurance is there's you know, a cooling off period after you first deploy into a into a contract. You can't make a claim for 10 days. You know, that varies by platform, but Generally, it's so you know, you, there needs to be a certain level of um, uh, time that elapses between when you first deploy. But you know, d- these contracts are denominated in ETH most of the time. So ETH fluctuates. And so you need to sort of rebalance and manage the, the value of your yep. contract if you're, if you're yep. defending something in dollar terms. So there's there's this, um, you know, this, this policy or piece in the policy that's like one sentence long that says, well, if you rebalance, then you know, the, the cooling off period doesn't, doesn't matter. And it says rebalancing is generally between you know, X period and X period. But you know, so, so what, what happened is you know, there, there's a time that you, know, you rebalance and it hasn't been for a while because ETH hasn't moved. And then yep. you know, the event happens three days later. And so it's like, well, was that a rebalancing? Why would I rebalance on a periodic basis if the, the basis for rebalancing isn't there? Um, and so you know the the policy is sort of unclear on that and what was a real like eye opening moment for us as we were going through this was it it's not it's not a company that you need it's not Lloyds of London you can be like the policy yeah, says yeah, this yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and, yeah, and yeah. we were kind of in discord like roasting people for like this isn't what it said And they're like this is a community governed thing man make your case to the community i was yeah. like that that's exactly right that is exactly true um and and that's really cool and and it's such a cool example of all of this decentralized governance but you know i'm sure that the next time they go through it it'll be okay well this is what rebalancing actually means as per this community case law when this yeah, person yeah. Made and then it'll end up you know grow 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 grow, and yeah it, it it's I agree with you that, that getting it down to those short things and and it it's really it's easy to comprehend and it's easy to understand um and and it's there there's some hybrid way to do it that that doesn't require these 500 con board con, or 500 page contracts but gives you the specificity to need to business plan right
1: but that's the interesting thing a big big thing and a big difference is that all of a sudden, it's not writing a letter to Lloyds and then getting to the head of the VP of services or or manager or GM or CEO or whatever. It is going to the, the actual community and rallying the community behind what we're working on, right? And you need to then write in the forums, express your case, really document it well, rally the community behind your case and, and, and get them to endorse it and support you, right? So you actually need to be involved in that, you know, in, in that club, in that church, in that association. And you need to be a part of that. And it's very similar to the service that you're subscribing to, an insurance. I need to be a part of that insurance community, that DAO, right? The, uh, and it's just another association, a club, a society, a um uh, uh, yeah, uh, you know, so it's, it's 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 interesting.
2: No, you're you're exactly right too, and 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 I think we're so used to this like uh, service provider service providee relationship where it's like this is what it says. I pay my money. I don't understand it, but someone told me it's okay, and you know, hopefully, I never have to deal with it or think about it ever again. And if I do, I'll hire somebody else to interpret it and and it's so it's so different in you know it's almost going back hundreds of years into kind of you know re, recreating societal norms and what you have to do and and that's why it was such like a mindset shift coming from a big institution to be told by the authority figure that's like i don't have the authority this is you know this is you are claiming against community assets according to a set of rules that the community agreed on if you don't agree with one of the rules, then take it to the community because this is exactly the point. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think there's sort of a, you know, a radical change in, in mindsets that, that we need to kind of go through to do this as well. And, and that's why I, I encourage everybody. And, and you, you know, you you do see it, and I think you'll see it more and more as as we kind of rebuild this this next deep winter. Um, you got to get out there and play with it. Like you got to get out there and vote. You got to go out and create some weird proposals on compound. Like you got to get out and, and participate in these in these types of structures. You can't just buy and hold and, and hope that it'll all work. Um, and and I think you know that there's been a lot of sort of um, non-participatory capital that, that that has come in over this last run, and that's fine. Like we you know we, we're not going to get a ton of tech people who are really kind of getting their hands dirty. Um, but I, I think, and, and I was talking about this earlier today. This this next leg, like we need to go back to the ethos in a lot of these ways. And, and I think we've kind yeah. of got away from that a little bit through this last bull run. Like we need to get back to the decentralization ethos. Like code code is law. This is what will be written out. You know, this this sort of radical inclusion mindset. Everybody has a voice. There's you know a defined way to up your participation value. Um, everything on chain or everything you do online is recognized and has some value. Uh, like there's, there's sort of a, a, a level of participation that I think needs to drive the next wave of adoption here as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's going to be interesting because <clears throat> deals are going to be done a lot less between people, right? It's going to be done through, I have a suggestion it's like i can't close a deal and shake a deal with alex anymore or negotiate back and forth maybe we can negotiate the terms but it's all going to be documented online in a forum where i have to pitch my case i have to put forward the case this is how I, and then the community chimes in and then if the community if there's enough community engagement then maybe it gets put forward as a proposal then as the proposal people have to vote on it right and so it's like it's it's going to be a very different world in terms of interactions between entities or, or or communities or businesses or I don't know what the right word will be, but it's going to be a, an evolution for sure.
2: Yeah. Well, and and you raised a couple of interesting points there. I mean, you you uh, were involved with uh, with Haifa and the Seeds ecosystem and, yeah. and um, all of that stuff during during kind of the the Regen finance side. Um, and, and a lot of that was, was on display there. I mean, I, I, I give those guys a ton of credit for taking, you know, a, some, some, some radically different views of creating organizations and, you know, scaling it to, to community participation and proposals and really sort of taking it away from the, the traditional way of, of managing things. And they brought some incredibly interesting people into that group and, and uh, some incredibly interesting projects and proposals. Um, this kind of you know, radically different way of, of running decentralized organizations, um, and, and I think you know, to, to your point on negotiation, that was actually one one of the first things that I thought about doing when I um, quit banking or when I first left banking. Uh, and actually, you know, the, the one of the, the reasons I kind of left banking is I, I built an entire like merger model where we just automated the whole thing. And all you needed to do was just dump in two tickers and like entire merger math and like negotiation points would sort of fall out of it. And you could like, at, at one point, like why, why am I here as a junior banker anymore? We could just do this entirely by machine. Um, but as, as in another point, it was, you know, the, the whole deal making process of, okay, well, I'm a business broker. I have my 10 companies, I'm a small business, I have no idea how to go about you know, selling or finding people or doing this. Like, our, we end up in such suboptimal outcomes when we do this entirely manually and offline. You know, there, there is a huge um, scope for, oh, finally, I found my person, I can handshake, we can do a high five deal and, and let's get this done. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, what's the, the rule on humans? You can only have like 150 real contacts before it's just you know, beyond our, our capacity to uh, to manage it. Um, and so there's such a scope for, a, and we, we did a lot of this when we were kind of fleshing out this platform of, you know, automated negotiation, data-driven negotiation, like getting to better outcomes when you can expand the the community and the type of people that you can interact with and engage you know, AI, engage kind of machine learning, engage those types of um, additional technology to get to better outcomes overall. And I think it's it's really these sort of hybrid um, uh, governance mechanisms that that allow you to, to do that, where it's not just purely offline, shake the hand. It's not purely, you know, this this is the outcome and, and it's a black box how we got there. Um, it really is you know, using machine learning to parse the crazy technical parts of negotiation and, and using crowdsourcing and, and using sort of those those other ways to expand past beyond what we can do as just individuals to create these kind of better outcomes for everybody and get past biases, like all of the things that sort of have hampered deal making and hampered businesses for, for a long time. Um, I think there's such an opportunity to codify that created in these open source forums, have it be chaotic and weird and ugly and, and, and ultimately get to better outcomes. I think it's, it's our kind of job now in the aftermath of a lot of this chaos to sort of rebuild those structures as well.
1: Yeah. And put them actually into action, right? I mean, it's going to require a different set of um, – I mean, it, different people will emerge out of this, right? Because the approach will be very different, right? I mean, it, it's really – You've got to have a different nature in terms of how to corral people, how to document stuff, how to motivate people, and, and, and yeah, a community and rally them. It, it, it's definitely going to be a different approach um, to things moving forward, right? And uh, I don't think it's going to happen overnight, for sure not, right? We're so entrenched in, um, we don't like trustless, right? We like trust I want to trust a person, right? I want to call a guy, Sam Bankman-Fried, and call him and say, where the fuck is my money, right? I, <laughs> um, you know, I want to call somebody or, or just be able to talk to some versus some arbitrary community. And if I'm bringing up some bad news, nobody's going to want to respond to that, right? Unless there's a huge constituent, right? But if it's damaging and it's it's an actual fact, and it's damaging to the community. Where does that leave everything, right?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I think this is kind of the you know, the, the the time to experiment with some of those. And, and there's been a lot on kind of the DAO side, and and you know, that that's been sort of a quiet area of growth, I think, because there's not a ton of economics really attached to it right now. It's sort of radical experimentation without a ton of dollars attached to it, which is really, really fascinating. Um, but, but I think kind of one of the, you know, one of the things that I've always been fascinated by in, in terms of kind of you know, decentralized governance and automated governance is um, it, well, I guess two things. One, you know, the, this concept of um, I don't know, on-chain reputation, I'm not sure if that's kind of necessarily the right word, but like where a, a quadratic voting is a word that gets sort of thrown around a lot on the side, but, where every, everything you do has some level of impact on your, you know, your standing or, or your reputation within the community. So I think this, like, you know, everybody gets kind of completely open, you know, equal access is, is challenging. Like there's some level of, you know, to, to your point before of, okay, you need to get in there, you need to mix it up, you need to rally people to you, you need to do all that stuff. Um, I think some some of that needs to be sort of signal mechanismed as well, yeah. where okay, you know this 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 person has just joined versus you know this person's been here for a year and has you know this many quotes, this much karma, whatever. Um, that that type of um, of, kind of sort of reputation structure, which I know is is being um, you know being being worked on in, in a lot of these forums. Um, but the the other one is is where. Where kind of human decision making uh, gets factored into smart contract style logic, um, and the, the one I always use and, and the one I always think about is um, like loan covenants. You know, it's it's very kind of cut and dry, um, and and you know it's it is very this is what your loan covenant says. But if you know, if you if you've got a loan from a bank as a small business. You, know, you you get, you know, you're you're not gonna meet your debt eBed covenant, you're gonna be off by point one. You know, you call up Larry from the bank and be like, big guy, exactly. I'm not Hey,
1: Hey, you. I'm coming, how are we yeah. gonna do like, this? Hey, let's talk it yeah, out and be yeah, like, yeah, Don't yeah. even
2: worry about it. Here's a quarterly uh, extension. Um and, but in smart contract land it's like you're point zero 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 one off one block after it's done. It's like your collateral's the like you done, you're gone. <laughs> and and yeah, you know, the those are both you know, very different ways to do it, obviously, and I don't think a lot of people think about kind of that that side of it when when we're advocating for this you know transparent type of uh, smart contract logic when that, uh, that that goes into these platforms. But I think there is there is sort of a you know a, a hybrid model where it's okay, you know, this is this is flagged as as in default right now 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 now, and you know, it needs a human to kind of arbitrate and wave or you know, for these exact reasons you can unlock this and go that way um, and I think there's you know, really sort of um, taking it from human discretion is everything yep. with you know some, some business processes that are you know I read in a handbook one time when I first joined the bank um, versus okay you know, there are hard and fast rules and human discretion is only where it's kind of needed I think yep. that's the kind of evolution that we're going to start
1: going towards as well. Yeah, there was this really good um, podcast where, I don't know, there's this economist and a former banker, um, uh, Werner Herzog, Herzog is his name, out of, uh, he used to be in Japan, then he's in Germany. And he was talking about the importance, coming back to your lending example, right? He was talking about the importance of you know, the the having smaller banks that are more in tune with the local environments and the local businesses, right? Ultimately, there's also a bit more accountability because we know each other. We hang out in the same neighborhood. We go to the same events. We all sort of are our tighter knit community. And over time, I know your business, right? I know what operations you have. I know somehow you've banked with me for, I don't know, the last 10 years, and I see your credit rating as a result. There's a little bit of human element in there. So when you need a loan, like DCG does right now, there are some people you can call and then there's somebody at the end of the line that says, yeah, look, I can give you a shortfall. I can cover you. Why don't I, you know, or you want to work on this new R&D feature because it's the only way you're going to be able to compete against this new upcoming technology innovation. How do you do that, right? And then so... Because I know your business, because I understand it, I can give you a loan within one, two days. You don't need to wait the 27 procedures, fill out 3,000 forms and then be able to get there, right? And so there's that nice balance that I think we do need um, and and how do we achieve that? You know, I think it's, yeah, ultimately a lot of it's time, right? I mean, it's, it's how long have you been in the industry? Who else do you know? How how do you know the right people? Do you have banks that have banked with you for a while period of time, right? It's so building that credibility, unfortunately, still takes time. Earning trust takes time.
2: Yeah. And and I think this is kind of one of the, the things that you know, going all the way back to, to when I first joined the industry is yeah, you know, this idea of kind of like scaling trust and monetizing trust and, and really sort of these these trust frictions that we build. I mean when you started out with communities, you, that was entirely what it was. You only knew kind of the people in your immediate area. And, and sort of one of the first ways that we, that we achieved scale in commerce in general was these like international banking houses, right? Like the Medici's and, and, uh, and people like that. And they basically were like, I know this person in Venice, so you can give them a loan in New York because of trust. And even, you know, we kind of scaled it to like fashion houses as well. Like you, you know, they, the, the big fashion houses in Paris said, okay, well, this is what people here like, you can trust me. So you can sell them the same thing in New York or in Toronto. In New York,
1: exactly, yeah. And,
2: and so it's almost like kind of going back, but that, that has huge limitations. And it's like, you know, why do the Medicis get to decide who, uh, who is trustworthy? And so it's almost yep. taking those sort of core fundamentals, stripping them down to kind of the basic bare bones and building tech around them, right? Yep. And so it's like, okay, what is what are the universal components or ingredients to the trust that would then go out into the world from those big sort of offline uh, trust brokers of, of back in the day, um, and and that's you know that that's really hard, right? Like it's not yeah. an easy thing to do at all. But I think that's if if we can kind of keep that um, idea of okay, how did we originally do this hundreds of years ago before technology entirely. When it was entirely people, so I think a big part of it is sort of you know, re-injecting humanity into this like, ever-increasingly machine-speed world um, and, and kind of trying to recapture that core and codifying that. Um, I think that's going to be kind of a big part of, uh, of, of this next wave of, of community governance. Um,
1: yep. But I so think it's, it's also the decentralization element of that, right? It's, it's like it's no longer these big, centralized, monolithic institutions that decide globally this is the fashion, right? Paris decides what fashion is, right? Or Medici decides what the financial services are that everybody has to get and you don't get any more. Now it's it's much more decentralizing a lot of that, right? And, and, and sort of empowering... Um, the communities right and they can be global communities but just in a niche area focused on a common interest or they can be a regional community right in 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 a geography in a little city or in a in a village right and and so i think these different models are now available
2: yeah absolutely and 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 i think and and i i didn't necessarily intend to get to this point but i always love getting back to it is you know, re- reprogramming the machines a little bit from, hey, you know, we've said shareholder value maximization a few times. and mean, yeah. we basically built our corporations into yeah. shareholder value maximizing yeah. machines. Yeah. And then we've taken humans out of most layers of decision-making and it's right. like, we are doing the thing that makes the most money where, you know, that used to be like more money used to be a proxy for, you know, being a better corporate citizen, blah, 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 before, you know, technology way back in the day. Um, and you know, now that we have all of this ability to automate, you know, let's think about how we reprogram the machines. What are we optimizing them for? Is it you know, carbon neutrality? Is it like you know, dopamine maximization? I mean, you can get as crazy and silly as you want on how are you programming kind of your, your maximizing machine. But one, one idea that I sort of love is you know this this idea of um, optimizing for sustainability versus optimizing for you know, growth and, and i think you know, we we see it like the DeFi pools are, are kind of a great just a super simple example when the pool gets too big the incentives to put more into it drop 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 drop, drop. and yep. the incentives to take assets out of it grow 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 um, you know, you don't have that in a company. When a company gets bigger, the incentives, to, to it doesn't get incentivized to get smaller. No. It gets incentivized to become bigger, but growing on a bigger base is even harder. So you end up in that, you know, the, the almost like the lending model that we talked about where the easy yields are gone. And so you need to get crazier and crazier. Um, and I think you can you can extend that logic to, to a whole bunch of, of these kind of decisions now of, okay, you know, what what is... What is, and, and to, uh, to Werner Herzog's um, concept of kind of smaller banks as well, you know, yep. it, it's about a pool of assets that makes sense for that community. And when that pool is depleted, then you know, incentivize people to replenish it, incentivize people to pay back into it. And when that pool gets big, then open it up to other communities, allow other people to draw on it so that it kind of you know, comes back down to where it's the right size. And that's, you know, again, it's sort of a complete mindset shift around our you know, grow, 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 maximize shareholder value. And we don't have the models or the codification around how to even, you know, we don't have the language to even talk about that a lot of the time. Um, but that's the kind of stuff that, that really you know, gets me going for like 20 years from now about what we can do on it. But I
1: think one thing
2: that, I mean, is interesting, right? You're very much,
1: you've been very much focused also on building cross-border trade, right? Um, I mean particularly between the u s and Canada, but ultimately um, you know cross border trade matters uh, beyond those those boundaries right and how do you feel with the current at a macro level right this whole notion of deglobalization right where all of a sudden I mean our view is inflation's here to stay because of deglobalization because you do not have the economies of scale on a unit per unit basis anymore. Due to this deglobalization, I can't have one factory anywhere on the world building for the whole planet, right? And leveraging one R&D to do that. Now I've got to have 15 R&D centers, 27 factories, all with the same machines, and each one now slicing and dicing the economy. So ultimately, that's going to rise. It, the, lead to increase in costs. So where do you view that? I mean, in a way, it's good because it's decentralizing, right? So (laughs) it's bringing it to a local level. But how do you view, you know, with crypto, the Internet, e-commerce, we've been building everything to connect the fabric of the planet, optimize the resources available on the planet to build a better planet. Whereas now we're going back to the opposite where it's, Ooh, I got to protect my own economy, my own resources. Um, I mean, how, do you have an opinion or a view on that or yeah. Yeah, And what are you seeing? I mean, mean, you
2: you kind of go back to back to the original view of the Satoshi white paper and it was to create this global structure of commerce. Um, and yeah, we, we've, we've, Patted ourselves on the back about that in crypto for years and done not very much with it. And a lot of it, you know, it, it's the reason we're both kind of working on the stablecoin side is if I'm running, you know, a margin based business in, in you know, Kentucky or India or Europe or wherever, I can't have the global currency Bitcoin dropping by 40% and like, oh, my, my business doesn't make sense anymore. Um, and so you know we have kind of hacked it in a couple of ways and eventually you know if we're all on this bitcoin standard or whatever the currency is maybe that does make sense where hey i no longer need to denominate in local currencies because i can pay my staff i can do this i can do that and it's all you know it's all in the same currency so fluctuations according to other things don't matter maybe we will get there who knows and and you know that that is a potential cool outcome we've sort of hacked it right now with you know, U.S. dollar hegemony in, in stable coins, right? Or it's like, okay, well, everything gets denominated to the U.S. dollar. We trade everything into the U.S. dollar. And then, you know, you you can deal with your little currency fluctuations at the edge. And you know, sorry if that doesn't quite work for you. Yeah. Uh, and that's okay. It's a, It's a bit of a step in the right direction. It's better than Bitcoin volatility. But there's still major local currency volatility. You still end up with FX risk. I mean, even in Canada, where the you know the currency between the Canada and the U.S. is not it's not that volatile, except for last week where it inexplicably became volatile. Um, but even those like two or three percent, if you're moving your millions of dollars around, those are like meaningful hits to your to your uh, to your bottom line. And so, yeah, I think yes, we have kind of these these um, like stablecoin system of commerce now that's getting better, and you can start to skip the correspondent banking structure with it, which is a huge part of. You know this, the stablecoin structure of global commerce in general, but we really need this interoperable system of digital dollars in every in every currency that people can take all the way to the edge. I mean, I think it's I said it on a podcast with uh, with Dante from Circle the other week. Um, it's almost like fiber to the home versus fiber to the curb. Like it's great that you could get you know fiber all the way out there, but really unlocking that special kind of magic is the last mile as well. Of, local currency, stable coins. And a lot of that needs, you know, on-chain FX. It needs liquidity in all of these coins. It needs um, harmonization of regulation across country. You can't have something be a payment token versus yeah, an unregistered yeah, yeah. security versus, yeah. you know, it, that, that just doesn't work. So there's there's all of these kind of things, but I think it's, it's all in service of exactly what you said, this idea of, you know, a globally optimized um, uh, structure of commerce that doesn't have these sort of artificial barriers or artificial friction points that keep certain places artificially small, inflate the importance of certain places, um, empower banks and financial institutions way too much as sort of the gatekeepers of those cross-border things, um, but really creates that structure whereby I, I can have an idea anywhere, put it down in code and have the global system of commerce feed me the right currencies, the right resources, the right pieces of labor um, and you know, where where there is physical stuff, where there's intellectual property I can import from other places um, and have it all work to the last mile and to the actual edge. Eventually, again, if we all end up on you know, one global currency because this works so well, that's an interesting outcome. But we're obviously miles from that. And yeah, we started it with U.S. dollars, but we need to add those other currencies as well. And we need to have um, the right structure whereby. Uh, You can do what you do today, which is pay bills, end up in bank accounts, like all the boring shit of international commerce that we do today. We need to first make that 90% better, those step function value propositions. Um, And then we can keep growing from there. Then we can create these entirely machine speed webs of commerce, blah, blah, blah. But as long as we have that jump into fiat, we're always going to be artificially limited in kind of the crazy cool stuff that we can build. So that's really why we think about cross border commerce is sort of taking a barrier out of these really, really, really interesting uh, structures of global uh, commerce that that you're talking about, Stefan.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, it's like and I struggle with I mean, I've grown up. I was born in a country, you know, went to school in a different country set up businesses in many different countries and run businesses across many different countries around the world. Right. And so I struggle with this notion where we should limit ourselves only to one, you know, one jurisdiction and, and, um, and and then you see egos come in that are running and representing specific jurisdictions that feel, You know just out of ego we need to make sure that our laws are the best laws and above all laws versus what is actually going to benefit society the most right okay we we feel we want energy independence okay then go figure that out right work that out but that doesn't mean at the cost of being able to import other energy i mean why shouldn't we be able to transport energy right and and um i don't know i just yeah I don't know where I'm going, but I just feel that the jurisdictions around the world create what FTX actually took advantage of, right? Where I just set up lower entities around the world in 700 different jurisdictions and by the way this is no different to enron i was just watching the enron movie you know documentary on you know the smartest guys it's exactly the same they built all these offshore entities and they moved all the debt and the onto these offshore entities so it was shaded and hidden and it was by the way audited right so by attestation by accounted registered auditors right so it's like you know, yeah, it's like yeah. where bad people will be bad people, full stop, right?
2: Yeah, and the jurisdictional arbitrage is is a, an interesting point to this whole thing as well. Where Yeah, you know, and, and and we've seen the good and the bad of it. I mean, Bermuda, fantastic example. They have a great jurisdiction, great legislation, great rules, very thoughtful and progressive, and you know, a small a small um, country that has attracted some really interesting businesses, um, and and. The counterpoint is okay, well, I want to run and set up a business as fast as possible. And you know, I want to go to Vanuatu or you know, one of the other jurisdictions where you know, I can do whatever I want, and because of you know international capital flows, then I can generally run not a not a full business, obviously, but I can run, you know, I can access a fair amount of the world from these places that would not have historically been able to support you know any of the operations that I need to do. Yeah. And so I think it's, it's sort of you know, finding, finding the good examples and learning the right things from them of, hey, you know, setting up and spending the time to get a thoughtful, uh, progressive digital asset regulatory regime um, is, is a way for smaller countries to compete on a global scale, um, but w- without sort of falling prey to the bad lessons of, hey, you know, setting up a haven for bad actors, and that's still taking advantage of, of all of those sort of international uh, friction reduction agents that we've created in this space. So I, I, I totally agree with you. And, and I, think, I think ultimately it comes down to hiding in complexity. And if yeah. we have this crazy um, you know, regulatory world right now where all of our AML regime is around um, you know, detection and around people and around sort of history versus on chain where it's, you know, around that asset it was like hey that yeah. asset came from there it's bad it's it's way simpler right yeah, it's, it's like okay, so you got these wallet like, monitored um, and it's very different i mean obviously that's a gross oversimplification of how it actually works but you know, if and and i think it's it's back to something we were talking about earlier of if you have this if you hide in the crypto ethos but still operate in kind of v1 or centralized world there's a lot of holes to drive bad actions through. So if you're going to, or if we as a society and world are going to go the crypto ethos route, you know, we need to go all the way and create enforcement regimes that are using on-chain transparency, on-chain analytics, like, and really sort of you know, put governance at machine speed on-chain as well. It's really hard to have this sort of hybrid model because there's you're just creating these sort of cracks for bad actors to hide anything.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it's, gonna, it, it, it's definitely, in my view, it's just going to create more and more challenge, right? Just the, the concept of AML. And we're so focused on KYC and AML, right? It's all that's, it, it, it. It's about every regulation and every, it's all about that step. But actually, there's so much more to it, right? It, it's really, that is a That's the worst and least important element around everything, right? I mean, sure, it's important, right? But I mean, in the end, what is the asset? What is the movement of that asset? Where did that asset come from, right? Is that an asset that is allowed to move into here? And and those are things that I feel um, there are so many, be- there's so much better ways of allocating resources to identifying what is good and what is bad, right? And versus just stepping on le- regulation after regulation after regulation where it's become now so hard. I went to FedEx and I wanted to send a actual letter in an envelope to Hong Kong. I could not, FedEx would not send it because I didn't have an export license for a letter. <laughs> I mean, it's like, that's how crazy the world has become. And then I could go down to the U.S. Post- Postal Service and I post it from there, and that, no problem. No problem. They sign it. They send it. So it's like yep. it's like what's what's going on? You know, it's like I mean, okay, it's taken now ten days instead of the two days that FedEx would have sent it in.
2: And, and I think you know some of it just with, with regards to, to you know, digital asset stuff is <clears throat> it's almost top down versus bottom up um, enforcement. Like we in in sort of traditional world we don't have the technology to follow money around on a dollar by dollar basis. Like yep. you know, certain amount we can uncover accounts and we can get, you know, swift uh, reconciliations and that stuff. But there's so many places where it sort of drops off the grid. It goes into cash you know, there's yeah. 10 old buried in complexity, you know, shell companies, all of that stuff. And, you know, there's a huge business around kind of you know, financial crimes and, and sort of peeling all of that stuff apart. Um, and, and so I think we, we generally try and simplify it by, being like, by trying to profile actors instead, saying, OK, you know, if you send $9,999 when there's a $10,000 limit over and over again every day, then you, know, you must be doing something bad. So you're going to yep. be high risk. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, it, and it's sort of this top down approach because it's like it's like by compl- it's too complex to go anything deeper than that. You need to sort of hack it. And in crypto land, it's almost the, uh, the other way around where, okay, like each dollar can be traced around. And it's like, that was a bad wallet. It came from there. So this is bad. And so if you, if you kind of go go that route and say, yeah, and, and the, the top-down approach has very little privacy, right? Everybody needs to step into the light. Everybody needs to identify themselves and say, hey, I'm this person. Um, the, the other route, when you go from kind of bottom up, you know, if you're never transacting with any bad addresses, if you're, you're doing everything that that matches that, like, you know, do do you need to go that that entire route? Do you need to sort of step all the way in? Um, and, and we kind of have this you know, this unofficial threshold in, in traditional world right now, um, where you know under a thousand dollars or under you know a certain threshold, you don't need to report it. It just is what it is. It's basically a simulation of a you know petty cash transaction, and regulators have kind of. I, implicitly or Im- explicitly said, hey, under a certain amount, we're, we're okay with privacy. And you know, that, that's my worry about digital asset world is because you can now have that extreme transparency, are we going to just layer on the top-down approach onto the bottoms-up approach and you know, have a, an individual known every you know, cent and dollar that they spent? where you, know, you sort of need to choose one to preserve some level of you know, societal hands-offness or, or um, you know, whether it's privacy, and that's always a loaded word, but, but some sort of kind of functional uh, structure. So somebody at some point needs to choose to ignore on-chain transactions if we're going to continue to go the top-down route. And that's, I mean, that's really hard, but that's one of the things that's, that's a bit scary about CBDCs is...
1: Yeah, I mean the whole the whole beauty on on chain transactions is that I can well, I mean the transactions less so. I mean it's nice to see the transaction. I can see the in and out and everything, but the beauty around seeing on chain values, the TVLs, right, um, uh, LTVs associated with a, a smart contract, etc. Right, those are all helping with I don't need a specific proof of reserve. I don't need a specific, you know, proof of liabilities or, you know, attestation from an independent auditor, right? It's it's actually live for anybody to see and anybody can translate. One,
2: one important thing that's become really, really apparent in the last little while, and, and you know, I'm, I'm guilty of this to a certain extent myself, is, you know, I I think we all, maybe not all, but there's a certain false sense of security from saying, "Hey, I know what your cold storage wallets are. I can trace assets in and out," because yep. you don't have the you don't have the financial context of what those assets are. Are they treasury funds? Is this a loan? Is this a repayment? Yep. Is this collateral coming in versus you know, a, a, a revenue source coming in? <coughs> so what's what's awesome about you know platforms like Maple or CD five platforms is you sort of have this hybrid where every asset flow has a smart contract function that's attached to it. It's like, this is a repayment of default. This asset flow is interest. This is a staking of first loss capital. And it's like, that is a mind blowing level of, uh, sophistication is not the right word, but it's just, it's the perfect hybrid between the two. If you can have you know, a traditional business logic But when you have it written out in smart contracts and actually have each value transfer tagged to a smart contract function then you can start having this kind of universal transparency into all of these assets and all of these um types of on-chain movements and like those those types of innovations are they're quiet and subtle but that's really what's super powerful about kind of the the next next generation of the space and i mean if, if like, if SPF and FTX had had that, there, there just would have been no way to do this, right? Yeah. Like, you can do it if you, you know, hide in, in um, you know, TradFi complexity worlds and, you know, you move money around and maybe it comes out in a while or somebody flags something and then you start looking into it more. Um, and, and you can do it in, okay, I'm an on-chain operator and you know my, you know my wallets, but you don't know what these assets are. But you absolutely cannot do it in smart contract world, and unless major fraud, maybe. But it's you—you make the barrier to committing those crimes so much higher um, with all of these new innovations. And each meltdown like this forces us to get better at it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's it, right? Each meltdown will improves the ecosystem strengthens it. Some meltdowns have bigger repercussions. But actually, if you look back through history, every meltdown had a significantly, you know, quite a long recovery period, right? There's been no tax bailouts, no tax dollars been paid, no government bailouts. It's all been the community that funded these bailouts, right? And Um, some of the community members decided to leave they don't want to be a part of this community anymore a lot of them come back when the ecosystem picks up again and some of us just stay in but each time we have such a, a disruption each time the people that stay in grow right it grows but then also, people just retire, I guess, out of it as well and sort of take a more relaxed stand. But I think once you've had the crypto bug, it's super hard to let it go. I just don't think you can drop it.
2: Yeah. well, And, and you know, I, I've had the benefit of, of being the first place of employment of uh, many exceptional ex finance people at, uh, at Stable Corp and Bicameral and, and a few of the companies that we've worked with. Yeah. And it's, it's almost scary in a way you kind of come in as like, oh, yeah, I go home and I do my thing and I work in my job. And then you, <laughs> you see those same people like three months later, and this is not necessarily a good thing, but like 2 a.m. just hammering stuff out and being like, Oh, this is okay, so we got to do this. We've got to do that. And it's like, okay, this is kind of like you know, the, the world on steroids and you're just, you're so much more engaged. You're so much more passionate about it. But you know, I also think like you—you you saw it. I, I, I'm sure we're about to see it now. And we also saw it at the end of, uh, like, after Terra melted down, the crypto world just shut down for like two months. It's like everybody just went on a mental health break and was like, too crazy, cannot deal with this. Like everybody went quiet for it for like a yeah. month and a half, and, and yeah, you know, and that that does happen as well. Like it's there's safeguards around the traditional worlds and. All of those are not there in crypto and you're sort of strapped to a machine that's bigger than you. It can absolutely destroy you. It can make you a billion dollars and then take it away the next day. Um, and it's like, how, how could you go back to kind of like kitty glove finance after that when you've kind of played in this world? But it's crazy, man. But it's, uh, it's awesome to catch up with you again and, uh, and kind of dive into all this stuff.
1: Yeah. And that's why it's super exciting, right? I mean, there's so much adrenaline, there's so much opportunity in this space, there's, um, it's nonstop, you're always learning every day, there's a new, exciting activity, and you are a part of it, you are in the machine and, and moving with the machine. And there's a sense of purpose that we all have in trying to build something new that has the efficiencies that you mentioned really early on. So yeah, Thank you, Alex. Super exciting. Where can people follow and uh, and, and learn about, you know, StableCorp or maybe, you know, Alex, him, yourself and. Amazing. Uh, yeah,
2: absolutely. So um, LinkedIn, probably the biggest one for me. Twitter is weird, but I am on there sometimes. Um, StableCorp.ca, we just launched a new website. Uh, GrapesFinance.com is our, our front end cross-border platform. Uh, we're launching Yield as a Service, which is a Entirely new way to sort of think about the next generation of yield generation, um, which will be uh, yasdigital.com. So there's a whole bunch of ways, but LinkedIn, probably the easiest way, and stablecorp.ca has uh, the the link to all of those things. But uh, thanks a ton for having me, Stefan. I'm always uh, extremely interested in what you're up to. It's wonderful to hang out, wonderful to chat, and I will see you in Miami uh, in a week, my friend.
1: Yeah, next weekend, next week. So look forward to that. And thanks for your time. And yeah, um, awesome insights. Everybody, hopefully you're super excited like um, I am. And see you next week in Miami,
2: Alex. Thank Absolutely, you. my friends. Thanks Take for it easy. Time.
0: This was Stefan Roost and Alex MacDougall. You can follow Alex on LinkedIn at Alex alexmacdougall and Stablecorp on Twitter at Stable Corp. That's stablecorp. That's S T A B L E C O R P. You can also follow Stefan on Twitter at sroost99. That's S R U S T 99, and you can find the super excited with Stefan Roost podcast on all major podcast platforms and on YouTube on the Stefan Roost channel. Thank you for listening.